Let's go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And the Lord put on my heart a few weeks ago to really to hammer in on some of these these uh, events that happened leading up to the death of Christ. And we've spent five or six weeks or so looking at these verses, and we come to the concluding verses in Luke 22 this evening, beginning with verse 66. The title of the message is The Evidence is Overwhelming. The title of the message, The Evidence is Overwhelming. Verse 66, and as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And He said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not let me go. Hereafter, you'll see the Son of man, sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Art thou then the Son of God? He said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? We ourselves have heard of his own mouth. So because of verse 71, their statement that we don't need any further witnesses because we've heard what's come out of his mouth. We say the evidence is overwhelming. Let's have a word of prayer. Again, Lord, it's wonderful to be able to fellowship. Now, as we break the bread of life, we do need you to give us ears to hear. Make our hearts receptive. As we look into this text, O oh God, and look into these events, we pray that you'd humble us. Give us the ability to be strong Christians in the midst of persecutors. Because, God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen, amen. I don't think I can ever forget being a teenager and sitting in a service one time. And the man of God had read his text, said his prayer. And then he began the sermon with this question. If you were put on trial and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty? And the first time I heard that as a young man, I had to think about that. Have, have I and do I live my life in such a way that if someone was were looking for reasons against me, they could point out that I truly am a Christian in the Christ-like way. I think when we consider that in light of what Jesus is going through here, it's quite obvious that he's passing through some difficulties and circumstances because of how he is living. This man is innocent. He hadn't done anything wrong. It's safe to say that this night has been a very difficult night for him. He was apprehended, according to verse 54, and then taken to the high priest's home. All of this is taking place under the cover of darkness. It's in the middle of the night when these things are occurring. They're, they're hurting him, they're mocking him, they're hitting him. 
And it makes you wonder sometimes why it is that certain things people only do them when folks can't see what's occurring. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, I'm going to read to you verse number 19. It said, this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone that does evil hates the light. Neither does he come to the light because his deeds will be reproved. There's something about darkness that causes people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do in the light because they know they're not being seen. My mother used to always tell me nothing good happens after 10 p.m. when you're in school. Only thing going to happen after that time is going to be trouble. You're going to be doing things you're not supposed to do. Well, Jesus, at the end of chapter 21, the last two verses tell us that every day he was going into the temple and during the daytime he was teaching and thousands of people were coming to him. And then at the night he was going out into the Mount of Olives. But early in the morning, the people came to hear him. So imagine this. He's bedding down in the Mount of Olives, but every morning early in the temple, he goes and there are people that are gathering to listen to him minister the word. Men and women, boys and girls, dressing themselves, going into the temple precincts to hear what he has to say. You have to be a special man to get folks up out of bed early in the morning to come listen to you talk about God. The masses loved him. He healed the sick. He cast out devils. The babies loved him. The children even loved him. And that's why I believe during this particular circumstance they were doing what they were doing at night because they knew the masses of people probably would have tore these religious leaders limb from limb had they known what they were doing to Jesus and they worked hard at doing this in the middle of the night horrific things took place in the home of this high priest and you wouldn't think that these kinds of things would occur when someone who is religious is in charge but if this teaches you anything it teaches you that Sometimes the most religious people can do some of the most heinous acts. Yeah. I've told you before that some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life are people that are in church. People that have been in church and been raised in church. They can say things to you that, that can just really hurt your feelings. They can treat you in ways that, that really aren't nice. I mean, folks that have been in Sunday school for 40 years and still are as mean as a junkyard dog. Here's what we had. These folks were attacking Jesus, believing that they were pleasing God. John in chapter 16 says in verse two, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he is doing God's service. So Jesus was saying, saying there's coming a time there will be people who will take your lives and they'll honestly believe this makes God smile. You think religious people can be that angry, that mean-spirited? Here's what we have in the, in the scripture. People who don't know God very often attack people who do know God because the darkness in them compels them to attack the light that is reproving them and rebuking them of how they live. And that's why as a Christian sometimes, people who don't know God, they prefer to stay away from you and they prefer for you to stay away from them. You walk into a room with people that don't know God and then suddenly they get agitated because you've come in. You haven't said a word 
You haven't even really done anything. You just simply walked into the room and then suddenly the mood changes. And that's because darkness cannot understand the light. That's what creates that that agitation. Maybe you wondered sometimes why some people just seem like they don't get on or get along well with you and why they act like you don't, they don't like you. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It's just that Jesus stands up big in you. And with him standing up big in you, that evil that's in them is able to perceive that that light is inside of you. And so your presence causes them problems. Religious people can be absolutely mean. I've seen people that run around in church and shout and praise God. And then come Monday morning, they're yelling at kids that walk across the grass, headed to school. Yeah. I've seen church people that, I mean, they'll tell you how much they love the Lord. They give a whole lot of money to the church. But then when it comes to just being a blessing to somebody, then they get all angry. I can't believe these people are asking me to do this or asking me to do that. Sometimes religious people can be very harmful towards other people. Now, Jesus said the people who follow him are going to be killed in the future. What do you think this means through the centuries? If you've ever read Fox's Book of the Martyrs or the Martyrs Mirror, hundreds of stories, thousands of stories of Christians who lost their lives because of their faith in God. Look at what's going on currently around the world. People are persecuted for no other reason other than the fact they love Jesus. That's it. That's it. Tiffany and I one time were in Egypt on one of the occasions we were in Egypt. And I had to preach at the International Church in Alexandria. The family we were staying with were the pastors. Middle of the night, I don't know, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, whatever time it was. Phone rings, pastor picks the phone up. He gets uh, uh, this, this voice on the other line. It's a little girl from Canada. She's crying. She's needing some help. So he gets the information where she's at. And so he wakes me up and then... He and I, we go to where this woman is at, and we left our wives back at home. Well, when we get there, it's, it's, it's an abandoned apartment complex. It might have eight, nine, ten stories. I don't know how many, but there's one little, one little room in there. And in this apartment, there's nothing in there. There's no plumbing or anything turned on, nothing like that. And that's where this girl was at. And that's where the Egyptian authorities had left her. And fortunately, before she left Canada, she had the number to this international pastor, and she called. You said, well, what happened? Well, this young lady in the previous weeks had met a young man who was Muslim. They'd met online. And so this young man decided he wanted to fly from Egypt to Canada to meet her. So he did. When he got there, he really felt like he fell in love with her, but she was Christian. She didn't want to be Muslim. He converted to Christianity. He called back to Egypt and told his family that he had now become a Christian. A few days later, his mother and father then contacted him and said, look, you've got to get home quick. Your father has just had a heart attack, so you need to get back here as fast as you can. So, so she didn't want to leave him alone so they flew together to Egypt she's going to meet her in-laws this is her first time in the country this is going to be her first time meeting the in-laws they get there and as they're going through customs security comes and separates the two of them takes the girl in one direction and the young man into a room he walks into a room and there's his mom and his dad and they've taken from him his passport so he no longer can leave the country dad never was sick but they lied to get him back in that country because Islamic law says if you're Muslim you cannot 
convert to another religion. Well, they had that young man in there and they tortured him for I don't know how long, but I know when they finally brought that young man to where we are with that little girl, he was in a room with us and, on, and the door was locked so nobody else could get in. And on the outside were his parents and, and some other people and his mother was screaming and yelling in Arabic saying, I'll see you dead before I see you a Christian. See, Religion. Religion. Look at how many people today are losing their lives over in the Middle East. Could you ever imagine that'd be a time when on YouTube you'd have people burning to death? Did you ever think there'd be uh, another period in time where Christians would be stretched out in the town square of these small villages and being crucified with the other Christians in the villages, forced to watch ISIS had come along and put crosses and uh, painted, painted marks on the outside of the Christian home so that everybody would know who was a Christian, who would have ever thought that would take place. Yeah. There was a man that become a Christian in Iran about 20 years ago. And he went into hiding because he knew the security forces were going to come after him. And of course, you know, it's against the law to become a Christian once you're born a Muslim. So they came to his family's house in the middle of the night, kicked the door in, beat his wife and his kids, bloody and unconscious, punched out all the windows around the house, took all of their belongings, put them out in the street, then set the house on fire. And then those Christians secretly reunited with their dad and fled the country. We don't hear stories like that too often. But we do hear those reporters on television try to paint a picture for us that's contrary to what I know to be true all around this world. And when I go into these, these schools and I talk to these young people, I give them what I know and I give them all the truth they need to understand what the differences are between our Constitution and that belief system in the Middle East, democracy in our republic here, and what they have over there. But all of this is done by people in the name of religion, believing they're keeping Allah happy. I could do the same with Hinduism and India. Talk about communism in Russia, China. Talk about what goes on with the persecution of Protestants by uh, the folks in the Roman church in South America. But here is what I'm getting at. Jesus is in the home of the high priest. The high priest is the, is the highest religious figure in the country. And yet he's the one in charge of having Jesus blindfolded. And he's watching as he's being uh, slapped from one side of his face to the other. And he's watching as people are mistreating never says stop at all. And you can see that religion sometimes can be detrimental, even when you think of the Crusades. Notice the question that comes in verse number 67. Are you the Christ? That's a question people have asked many times. Jesus said to his own disciples, who does everybody, who does everybody say that I am? Jesus said, well, do, you, do you know what the scuttlebutt is around the country concerning me? And they said, well, some people say you're a prophet. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah or something like that. And Jesus then said, who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? Peter said in Matthew, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. No man shared this with you. You learned this directly from our father, which is in heaven. He brought this revelation to your heart. Surely they knew he was the Christ. And so here's the question. Are you the Christ? They know what everybody else is saying, but they want to hear Jesus say it. 
Remember the story with the, the woman at the well? John chapter 4 tells the story. Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Samaria. Jesus became tired. He rested on a well. The Bible says that he told his disciples to go to the market, buy some meat. So they were gone. And then up comes a lady carrying a, a bucket or a pail. She comes to the well to draw some water. And as she's arriving there and she's pulling that water up out of there, I'm sure she's looking at him. Jesus is looking at her. And finally, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus speaks and he says, could you please give me something to drink? And that, that woman says, you're a Jewish man. She look at how he was dressed. And she says, I'm Samaritan. There are racial prejudices there. Samaritans and Jews don't have anything to do with any with one another. That's what the whole story about the parable of the Good Samaritan was about. The Jewish people just would leave a Samaritan in the ditch. And so this this woman says, you, you don't even you're not even supposed to talk to me. We're, we're different class of people. Jesus said, if you knew who I was. You would willingly give me that water. She said, well, I don't know who you are. But whoever you are, I know we're not supposed to be talking. And she said, my family's been on this hill a lot of years. A lot of generations have passed up here and have died. And this is where the folks are supposed to worship God. You Jewish people say it's supposed to be over in the temple in Jerusalem. But I'm telling you, it's supposed to be on top of this hill. Jesus said, there's coming a day when we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what he said to her. And so in the conversation, he says to her, look, why don't you go call your husband and and bring him along? And then I'll talk to to, to the two of you. And she said, well, I don't I don't have a husband. And he said, you've spoken well. You have had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not is not your husband. You're shacking up. And that woman went into instant conviction. How in the world would this stranger know I've been married five times? Now, you think about that. That means. Five relationships severed. Can you imagine how wounded she was, how bitter she may have been, how much unforgiveness might have been in there? How many men had broke her heart? How many men had used her and abused her? Maybe we could put it in reverse. How many men she had used and abused? There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt there. Five husbands, and now she's given up on marriage, and she's living with a man. And Jesus is ministering to her and touching her right there where her need is greatest. And he's explaining to her, I can give you some water. You'll never thirst again. She thought about her life. She said, oh, my, if you've got water like that, could you please give that to me? Yeah. By the time he was done with her, this woman that had been married five times, he had converted her into an evangelist. And she left the water pot at the well, ran back to the village yelling to everybody, come see a man that told me everything I've done. And that's what we need. We need to know that there's nothing you have done that I have done that God has not seen. There's nothing you have done that I have done that God cannot forgive and is not willing to forgive. And God is able to take your life and transform it and change it and mold it. And he'll convert you into a witness and a spokesperson for him. The moment a person totally surrenders their life to him, come see a man. Let me tell you all about this, Jesus. I just met him at the well. So this, this lady said to Jesus, she said, you know, we've heard that the Messiah or the Christ is going to come. But we don't know when that's going to happen. So here's what Jesus said to her. The one that's talking to you right now, he's the Messiah. 
He said, I'm the Messiah. That's what he was saying to her. I'm the Messiah. So imagine what she thought. Here Jesus is standing before these, these religious people and they're saying, we want to know, we want to hear it from your lips. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus has told numerous people he was the Christ. They know the story. The rumors are floating around Israel. Multitudes of people have testified to it. And now they're asking him and Jesus says, if I tell you, you still will not believe. They said, okay, well, at least tell us, are you the son of God? Well, the son of God, that's... Uh, Pretty powerful phrase, has a lot of meaning, pregnant with a lot of meaning. The Greeks and the Romans had all kinds of myths and superstitions where the gods had come down and fornicated with ladies and had these demigods or heroes, as they would have been called then, Hercules, people like that. Remember the story of Barnabas and Saul when they healed the man in Acts chapter 14? The miracle was so great when the cripple took off running, all the people fell down and were ready to worship, and they were saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They called Barnabas Jupiter and called Paul Mercury or Apollo. The speaker. The idea of someone calling themselves the son of God wasn't unique in Greco-Roman culture, but it was very unique in Jewish history. Nobody called themselves the son of God. Jesus said, you say that I am. You're the one confessing I'm the son of God. You're asking me, but in your question, you're confessing that I'm the son of God. And they got angry at him. But this wasn't a new question either. John chapter 9, there was the man that was born blind. And people had a question. Now think about it. Parents, they give birth to kids. They don't have a lot of answers for why it is that sometimes kids come into this world with physical challenges, deformities. And even if a parent doesn't doesn't uh, vocalize it. Somewhere in the back of that mind, there's, there's some thoughts rolling around like, you know, everybody else has healthy kids. Why did this happen to me? You know, just, just somewhere, what, what, what's, what's going on? That, that, that can come out, especially if it's the kind of illness that perpetuates, like blindness. This baby was born unable to see. The baby wasn't able to see at the age of five, wasn't able to see at the age of 10, wasn't able to see at the age of 15. And then finally, as the, as the man, boy turns into a man, then in the, the ministry and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the question comes, who sinned? Him or mom and daddy that he was born this way? Now, this is interesting because Jesus had a healing ministry, but yet you still had a lot of sick people in Israel. Jesus raised several people from the dead, but there were still funerals all across Israel every single day. But in those cases in which he got involved, it was unique. Remember the man that laid at the pool of Bethesda 38 years? I'm sure everybody was clapping and running and jumping and shouting because that man was healed and they knew it was the power of God. Everybody else wanted to get in the pool, but he said somebody would get in before him and they were too slow. But now Jesus has come and touched them and I'm sure some of them squeezed out a few tears and their hearts were beating real fast. And then after they watched him walk away, then they realized they were still in that condition. And Jesus kept on going to where he was going. So here's my point. 
They wanted to put the blame somewhere, and that's how people very often want to do. They want, they want you to feel like it's you. Tiffany and I were talking to a young couple the, the, the other day, and they were talking about this whole thing, and they were saying, you know, I never understood how, when I was trying to get close to God, how people would always say, if something's not working for you, your faith is wrong, and you've got this in your body because of your faith. And they said, we were living in guilt and condemnation all the time and never even knew how to get out of it. See, Jesus said to the man in John chapter 9, but... This is not because of somebody's sin, but for the glory of God. That's what he said. For the glory of God. Okay. So the blind man can't see. Jesus comes along and Jesus heals the man. How did he do it? He spat on the ground. He took some mud. He put it on the man's eyes. Now, I know you. I can tell you right now, if he would have, as soon as you would have heard the Lord spit on the ground, you would have just started wandering off in another direction. Because some of you, 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 you can't even reach for a, the handle on a doorknob or something without a handy wipe. So I know just, just the idea of somebody, somebody spitting would have just turned you off. But he spat on the ground and then, and then he, that, that blind man, he heard that. I'm sure he was thinking, what in the world is that? And then Jesus says, come here. And Jesus takes that mud, puts it on his eyes. And that man probably was wondering what in the world is going on. And Jesus says, go to the pool, nearby pool, and wash your eyes and you'll be fine. And that man, he wandered over there. And that's sure enough what he did. He went over there. He washed his eyes out. And pretty soon he started seeing. And I guarantee you, that man was yelling louder than he ever yelled in his life. Totally healed by the power of God. You can't shut a man down or shut a woman down when they've really been touched by God. So this man is healed and he's running around. Praise the Lord. Outstanding. Look what God did for me. Yippee. I'm so happy. I don't know what to do with myself. And then the people start saying, well, what, what, what's going on? He said, well, I've been healed. He said, well, you know, it's the Sabbath day. Calm down. Don't you know on the Sabbath day you're supposed to be quiet and passive and peaceful? We don't act like that in church. You can't be making, making all of that noise. Settle down a little bit. God doesn't like all that stuff. He, he likes it when everybody's orderly and peaceful and dead. That man, that blind man said, I'm not thinking about any of you. I'm healed. They said, how did it happen? He said, this man, Jesus came and he spat on the ground and then I'm sure when they heard the word spit, they probably shut him off when he said that. He, he spat on the ground. He put the clay on my eyes and said, go wash. And I washed and now I can see. They said, we don't believe it. Go get his mom and his daddy. So sure enough, mom and dad comes. And they, they, they already have heard that if you believe in Jesus, you get kicked out of church. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. And so mom and dad are, 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 are they've got to be interrogated. And they said, now, is this your son? It is. Was he born blind? He was. What happened to him? We don't know, but he's of age. You know what that means? He's old enough to tell his own story. He can give you his testimony. They brought that man back in there. They said, tell us again. He told them what happened. They said, this is amazing. This man doesn't even love God. This Jesus man, he doesn't honor the Sabbath. Who would heal somebody on a Sabbath day? We don't do good deeds on the holy day. And this man said, I don't know whether or not you, you, you believe he does good deeds or not. I'm just telling this man loves God. They said, no, he's a sinner. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know, but I know I can see. 
And he said, it's an amazing thing if he's a sinner and he can open the eyes of the blind. Nobody in the Old Testament ever had their eyes open that were blind. And so they kicked him out. And they said, you can't come back. We'll get away from us. Who are you to preach to us? You've never been to Bible college. You haven't studied at the feet of a rabbi. Get away from us. Who are you? You were born in sin. Why are you talking to us about what God says? So he goes off and he sits on his own. And that's when Jesus finds him and comes and says to him, do you believe in the son of God? And he said, I've been waiting a long time for him. I know there's somebody like that. And Jesus said, the one that's talking to you right now is the son of God. Two stories. John gives us two stories that answers these two questions. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? Jesus was not ashamed to tell people who he was. He was not ashamed to tell people what his role was here on the planet. In verse 69, he says to all of these people, from henceforth, you're going to see the son of man sitting on the right hand of the power of God. Who is the son of man? And what does that phrase mean from Daniel chapter seven? I saw one like the son of man coming to the ancient of days with cloud in clouds of power, with authority and dominion. So it's a phrase that means God to be at the right hand of God. You can't get to a place like that unless you're deity. And the Jewish people understood that their literature taught that the Old Testament made it very plain that the son of man was a title that was ascribed to someone who was deity. They said this man has lost his mind to say that. Jesus said, hereafter, the son of man shall sit on the right hand of the power of God. Even in the midst of his trial and his persecution, he already has his mind beyond the cross, beyond the resurrection. Toward the ascension. where He's going to be enthroned again at the right hand of the father. So here is something to think about. After all of that was said and done. They said in verse 71, we don't need any more witnesses. We've heard it ourselves. The evidence is overwhelming. This man is deluded. He's delusional. He thinks he's God. And we need a sentence of death. See, That's what this is. But how did they arrive at this conclusion? They, they arrived at the conclusion in unbelief. How did you come to the conclusion that he was Christ, that he was the son of God? The Holy Spirit had to do some work in your life. He's the one that opened up your eyes to see the scripture. Do you know how many people sit in church every week and still don't believe a thing being preached from the pulpit? But the Holy Ghost comes in. He brings conviction upon your heart. You begin to think about yourself in light of sin and in light of Jesus' death on the cross. And once you see how far you've been separated from God and estranged from God and alienated from the life of God by, by sin, and you can see that the bridge is by the cross, reconciliation comes through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can start a brand new life simply by believing in him. It's at that point that a person really has come to know who God is because they've understood the gospel. Jesus said, hereafter, you'll see the son of man seated on the right hand of the power of God. That's what he said. But here's what they said. We don't need any further witnesses. We ourselves have heard of his own mouth. Now why is it that so many unbelievers think they're smarter than Christians? And why is it that so many of the doctors of religion think they're smarter than the common man? I mean the Bible was not written for PhD people. 
The Bible was composed by farmers, shepherds. The Bible was composed, yes, kings, David got involved, Solomon got involved. But none of these people were what we would call Greek and Hebrew scholars who were trying to put something together that would be so difficult for you to understand. Paul wrote letters to congregations in rural areas throughout Turkey and around the Mediterranean. And it's really not that difficult to read and believe. But that unbelieving mind wants you to think that this is too hard for you to understand on your own. And if that unbeliever can convince you that it's difficult. Then pretty soon you'll be doubting whether or not he's the Christ, whether or not he's the son of God. We're moving into the holiday season. And once again. There will be people showing documentaries trying to demonstrate how America is not so great of a nation. And poor Americans came over here and took the Native American Indians property and just bad stuff happened. And we don't need to feel good about our heritage. They're not going to tell you that according to the, the Bible, mankind started over in the Middle East. So even the Native American Indians, they, they had to get here and get it from somebody. You know, they, <laughs> the history of the world has been the, the strong and the mighty are the ones that conquer. See, that has been a history of the world. But they're going to remind everybody, you know, slavery, it's a it's a terrible thing. It's a it's a it's a blight on our American history. And there's nothing nice about it at all. But they're not going to tell you that all the societies of the ancient world had slavery involved. But America's the only one that got rid of it because of Christianity. I'm not going to tell you that. Christmas time, they're going to have those people sitting on television. They're going to be interviewed. They'll have nine letters behind their names, and they'll come from some prestigious university where they've graduated, and now they're on staff. They're one of the main faculty people, a great researcher. They're eminent in their field, and they're going to tell you there's no way on this earth anybody could have been incarnated in this world, and the Spirit of God couldn't come upon anybody. Somebody had to make that up. It's all a myth. I'm telling you, just hit the delete button when Dr. Idiot starts talking. And just believe what the Gospels say and what Peter, James, and John, and Paul said. And it'll be the same thing at Easter time. Peter, who, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You come to any other conclusion than that, you need to put your nose right back in this book and start with chapter 1 and read right on out through the end to know who he is. To hold on to your faith in God. Let's stand. We all face challenges. No doubt. I don't know what your week is going to be like. I don't know. Kind of people you're going to have to wrestle with. uh, Spiritual warfare you're going to have to. Be engaged in. But I do want you to know. God's already given you the victory. The Bible says the preaching of the cross is the power of God. But it also tells us that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. God gave Jesus the ability to stand surrounded by all of these persecuting people, but yet he kept his composure. The ability is there for you to keep your composure if you'll give over and let God live through you. You don't always have to fall apart. You don't have to just, you know, just... uh Give everybody two cents of your mind and get upset and allow anger to control your life. You really can yield to God. You just got to have an image in your mind of what what Jesus did. Somebody slapped him. He didn't respond. That'd be hard for you and for me. Not impossible. I just said it would be difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. 
They mocked Jesus. They laughed at him. Next time we're going to look at how, how they treated him before Pilate. But think about this. He didn't say anything. So you have the ability. Though people slander you and say things about you that are not nice, you can keep your composure if you want to. But in that rare chance that you don't, you still have the blood of Jesus that you can use to find forgiveness. The Bible says if any man sins, we can talk to the king about forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, no perfection at all in here. None of us are perfect. All of us are flawed. However, we serve somebody who doesn't have any defect in his life at all. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is to be able to look into the text of Scripture and see this great Savior that we have. Lord, we know that we fail to measure up in so many different ways. But yet, God, we contend we're getting better and better as Christians every day that we walk with you. So, Lord, we pray for each of our men here. Let their devotional times in the morning be wonderful. Let them have an opportunity to start the day reading and meditating on Scripture. For our ladies, Father, we pray the same thing for them, that their day would begin and end with them thinking about how wonderful you've been and teaching some principle from the word of God. And Lord, let the young people just be grounded in these great truths of the word so that they would have an anchor, a rock for their soul. That in the midst of all the things that take place in this world and in this changing, altering culture, that Lord, the one thing that will remain the same is what the word says in Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. We love you, God. We worship you and praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen, amen. Isn't God a wonderful?